0: Welcome back to the Spirits Guy podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating world of spirits, books, movies, music, and anything else I feel just connects us as humans. And this is season three, lucky episode number 13. And on this episode, I am having a conversation with my good friend Katrina, who is back in the studio. And we are talking about making movies and making film and. The stuff we don't see when we're looking at, you know, the screen, whether a movie screen or a TV screen or a tablet screen or whatever, uh, talking about kind of the nuts and bolts uh, in a a, a saying, we reference a lot of how the sausage is made when it comes to movie making Uh, really, really interesting stuff. And when when she came in here to the studio, I thought like we would have a, a short little conversation, learn some stuff. I had some questions. Uh, it was nice to it's always nice to have somebody in the studio to kind of hang out with and 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 share spirits with. I just didn't realize how much information we were going to get out of it. So I split it up into two episodes. Um, yeah, a lot, lot of good, good, fun information. And I had to kind of figure out what were we going to drink while we were hanging out? And I decided on gin because Much like, you know, when you're looking at movies and we talk about a lot of how people and I've mentioned this before, people think like my job is so great and so glamorous because I get to do nothing but drink all day. And that's not really the case. Yeah, I get to taste a lot of good things. I also taste a lot of really bad things. I also spend a lot of time doing a lot of research into things, uh, things that trigger my brain to want to hunt down things that is exciting. Um, So there's a lot you know, that kind of goes into it as well as my job is just lugging a lot of boxes and putting up a lot of stock and sometimes working a cash register and doing things that are very sort of unfun and unglamorous. And, you know, in her world, people think, oh, you're in in film and television. And, you know, are you an actress? You know, do you do anything sort of fun and glitzy and glamorous? And, and as we'll learn, like there's there's a lot more to uh, making the sausage that really isn't glitzy or glamorous or, or, or fun or, or sexy. It's just actual work. And while, yeah, I get to drink some really cool stuff. And every now and then she gets to meet somebody like a Brad Pitt or a Meryl Streep or work on a project like, you know, Don't Look Up, which was a big Netflix project that we'll talk about in the episode. Um, a lot of times she's doing just kind of grunt work as well. So fun, fun stuff and really, really interesting stuff there. I um, also want to thank you guys, you know, again, for taking time out of your lives, out of your day, out of your week uh, to spend it with me, listening to me rant and ramble and talk to my friends. Uh, I appreciate it more than, you know, hope you guys had a great, great Easter weekend as well. And this week, you know, after two weeks ago, my sort of ranting madness rambling and then last week losing all of my uh files for the podcast this week, I feel like feel like it all came together in a good way so hopefully you guys enjoy this episode and if you do you guys know the drill by now go to the podcast page click that follow button give it a five star rating share it out on your social media follow along on instagram and facebook where you can leave comments and reviews about the podcast you can also message me through both of those platforms and for anything else you can reach me at the spirits guide 89 at gmail.com all right guys enjoy the episode cheers all right so here we are season three episode 13 wow that's a little loud in my ear i don't know if that's the headphone let me dial that down a bit yeah season three episode 13 and on this episode, uh, I'm starting a conversation with my good friend Katrina, who is back in the studio. and we're talking about film. Now, when when we sat down to have this conversation, I thought maybe we'd get a, you know, a half an hour worth of chat about it. And the conversation just went so good, and it just kept going that there's just so much there and so much we didn't even get to. Uh, that I decided to turn it into a two-parter. So this week, you know, we'll get to part one of that conversation, and then we'll finish it up next week. So much good information, uh, you know, and really, you guys know, I like to look a little bit deeper than what's on the surface, and having her here changed the way that I look at, at movies and and, you know, It kind of gave me something to think about beyond like what's on the screen. So it's a lot of great insight into the people who make these things happen. And, you know, I love sort of the, the interconnectedness of, of life in, in those things. And, you know, for me, I, I joke about it all the time of how people say like, oh, you have this great job. You're, you know, you, you get to taste whiskey all the time and you get to drink all the time. And it's not always as sexy and as fun and as glamorous as it sounds. You know, sometimes I taste a lot of really awful stuff, um, for lack of a better word. But it. Sometimes it's just plain out bad. But I also spend a lot of time reading and researching and dealing with, you know, supplier reps and sales reps and, and things of that nature. And, you know, there's more to my job than just drinking all the time. Uh, There's a business, there's a a give and take, Uh, there's, you know, dealing with uh, customers that I, you know, I talked about a few weeks ago. So my job's not always as glamorous as people kind of think it is. And for her working in movies, and we discussed this in the podcast of like, you know, when people find out that she works in in television and film, you know, they think like, oh, are you an actress? Uh, You know, do you do this? Do you do that? And no, <clears throat> and she references it, you know, the, the term, you know, the, how the sausage is made. That's a lot of what she does. And I had a lot of questions of like, oh, you know, what does this person in the credits do? Uh, and she was able to answer it and give a lot of really cool insight, uh, not only to the who the people are behind the scenes, uh, but some of the business end of it as well. So uh, look forward to sharing that with you again. Part one this week. Uh, the rest of it will come out next week. Um, yeah. I'm really starting to get into this can popping opening segment thing. And I mean, you guys know, I've talked about it before. I'm diabetic. Uh, so I try to avoid sugar and carbs and, I was reading an article in one of the, you know, the many emails and subscriptions that I have, and it was an article on like the best light beers. And so I was looking down the list and, you know, one of the ones that they listed was from Lagunitas. This is their daytime crisp session IPA. And what stood out to me was there's only three grams of carbs per can. So, you know, i Bought some and I wanted to do a a review here to see if it's going to be worth my time this summer. Uh, Right away, I mean, the can is great. Laguanitas is a brand that's been around for quite some time now probably 25 years, maybe 30 years at this point. Uh, One of the original OG craft breweries out in the West Coast, uh, famous for what we know now as the West Coast style of IPA, as opposed to the New England style IPA, which is Oh my God. If I have to hear the terms hazy and juicy again in my life, uh, hazy and juicy to me is like when people talk about whiskey and go like, that's really smooth. Um, yeah. It's just a term that I, I really kind of hate to hear, but three grams of carbs. It's not in a skinny can. And I get why brands like Mic Ultra and white clarin truly do it. There's a psychological perception that if you're holding the skinny can, it's gonna make you skinny. it's it's a whole psychological play. Um, but I you know, for somebody like me who doesn't really drink beer anymore because of the carbs and the sugar, I still like that feeling of that short, fat can. Um, yeah, it just makes me feel like i'm I'm drinking a beer um, without getting all the carbs and the calories. So what do we got here? I mean, it smells hoppy and not it sounds like actual hops um you know when people say like they like ipas this is the original style of ipa which by the way stands for india pale ale and historically the name comes from the fact that when the british controlled india as a colony uh they would make beer and ship it to their troops there and they realized that it would go bad by the time it got to india so by fortifying it with extra hops, um, it made the beer more stable uh, to make the journey, and that style became known as India Pale Ale. You can still find some, uh, you know, older brands like a Sam Smith, um, you know, sort of British English style beers that are just plain old pale ales. They're not IPAs; they're just pale ales, and that's got its own definition. Um, but IPA traditionally means you know, more hops added to it. And this was the style of IPA <clears throat> that we were used to in this country. It's a little bit more bitter, uh, but that also makes it more food friendly. And then whoever gets the credit, whether it's Hetty Topper or Treehouse or whoever that made this sort of style of IPA that tastes more like Sunny D. It just juicy and hazy, and there's no bitterness to it whatsoever. You know, unfortunately, a lot of those beers are, you know, a couple hundred calories a can. So uh, not always the most healthy beers to drink, even though they're very, very tasty to try. So let's give this a quick taste here. Yeah, that's really tasty. You know, if you like that style and it's, it's nothing... You know, everything in in craft beer is got to a point like it is in in bourbon, of like, has to be special. What's new? What's next? If you just like beer, that's got some good bitter hop character to it, a little bit of citrusy flavor to it. This is it. You know, 4% ABV, which again, I like because you can drink more of them. And if you're out on Sunday fun day, which hopefully we're going to be out there in the next week or two, you know, playing some cornhole, you know, warm, sunny day. You don't want anything with a lot of alcohol because alcohol will dehydrate you, give you a headache. Uh, It will also make you sound stupid when you try to talk to your friends. So I like the fact it's 4% ABV, uh, 98 calories, 3 grams of carbs, right on par with what a truly or a white claw would be. Um, But instead of, you know, drinking those, you get to have a beer that tastes like a beer without, you know, having to ingest a lot of carbs. So sip number two, that is good. Now, here's the one thing I will say about this style of beer for me personally. I'd like it cold. So this is a great beer to throw in the cooler. Typically, uh, I don't mind beer at room temperature. I don't necessarily like it ice cold a lot of the times. But there's something about this style of beer that as it warms up, that bitterness just becomes more and more bitter and prevalent. Uh, So not appealing to me warmed up. But this ice cold on a hot Sunday afternoon. Yeah, this is going to be one of my go to's for the summertime. All right. So before we get to my conversation with Katrina, uh, let's talk about what's going on in the spirits world this week. And I feel like there's some redundancy and some crossover going on here. Uh, right off the top, rtds, Grey Goose. Now they're listing it as a ready to serve, not ready to drink. and I'm not really sure what the difference is. just I guess whatever you want it to be. but Grey Goose is releasing a ready to serve martini. if i I don't I don't get it. i. I guess you don't want to buy a whole bottle of dry vermouth uh, to make some martinis, but really a martini in the way most people drink them, unless you're going back to the classic half vermouth, half vodka style of martini. Most people just, you know, when they order them at a bar, they just want a whole bucket of gin or a whole bucket of vodka and a dash of vermouth. So now you're going to pay to have that pre-made? seems a bit silly to me. Uh, but it is made with dry French vermouth. It is actually made with orange bitters, which I do appreciate that because that was kind of the original style of martini. You know, vodka. Actually, real martinis are made with gin. Vodka martinis are for people who can't drink gin. Uh, dry or French vermouth, whichever way you want to call it, uh, and orange bitters. So, But again, does the world need it? don't know and who's paying for the r&d on this we are uh in the redundant world of rtds there's a brand out there called mom water <laughs> Just awful um and you know they're a line of vodka soda rtds so big i've never seen them anywhere in the market uh, but they're expanding everybody is expanding I don't know. Like it has something to do with having investors and you need to show growth. Just focus on what you do and and maybe try to get good at that before you expand. Uh, But they're expanding with a line they're calling dad water. How original Uh, and dad water will be made with tequila and soda. Uh, So mom's drink vodka, dad's drink tequila. I, I don't know. I was actually just having this conversation uh, with my girlfriend, before I sat down to record this of how I don't like when companies do things like this, like this is mom water. Now this is dad water as, as if, you know, moms don't drink tequila or dads can't drink vodka. But to me, you're alienating a large section of your market. When you focus in on one specific demographic, um, you know whether oh we made this to appeal to women well all right well now you just alienated the men, uh, this is a very manly thing well now you've alienated and disrespected all the ladies so I don't like it um, I don't like it from a, you know sort of ethical perspective but I also don't like it from a business perspective because people come in and try to pitch me on these products and go like well these are geared towards women like uh, well, yeah but I I need to sell it and you know I have men and women of all different, you know, backgrounds or whatever who come into my store, I want things that appeal to everybody, not things that divide my marketplace. So I again, I don't I don't know. Like do they really believe that moms don't drink tequila? Uh, I was a bartender, trust me. Moms can drink a lot of tequila. Um and again, with the RTDs, there's a An RTD company called Casa Azul, which basically means Blue House in Spanish, and they have a a line of tequila soda RTDs, they are entering the luxury tequila market. Again, redundancy, I feel like we're talking about this every single week, uh, whether it's luxury tequila, uh, whether it's RTDs, or my next sort of rant of celebrity uh, brands. So they're getting into the luxury tequila market. They're entering with a a Blanco, a Repo, and an Añejo at 69, 89, and 129, respectively. Where is all this tequila coming from? And again, good blue agave takes, you know, seven, eight, nine years to mature. If they keep harvesting this, like, I, I don't know how they're reproducing all this agave. Or if they're just using younger agave, I don't know where this is coming from or what justifies it being luxury. Uh, but now like in my brain, when I see the words luxury or premium, they just mean expensive to me. Uh, they don't mean better quality. They just mean more money. Uh, there's another brand called hoop tea that makes a line of hard tea, RTDs, um, I expect to see this in the marketplace because they partnered with Anheuser-Busch back in 2021 or 2022. Uh, And when you go with a a company like Anheuser-Busch, that's not meant to be a small regional brand. Uh, That will be probably out everywhere soon. You know, Anheuser-Busch owns Cutwater, and now we're seeing Cutwater everywhere in the market. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Hoop Tea out there uh, as well. And another new luxury tequila brand uh, called Celoso. Uh, Somebody big in business is backing this brand, you know, and their whole thing is like it's made with seven-year-old agave. Well, yeah, agave should be seven or eight years old before it's harvested to make it any good when you're, you know, kind of distilling that agave into tequila. That's not really a marketing thing to me with tequila. And by the way, if anybody tries to sell you a bottle of tequila and like, we double distill our tequila. Yeah, you have to. It's a marketing thing. It's like saying your bourbon is aged in barrels. It has to be. It's like saying your tequila comes from Mexico. It has to be. It's implied by the name tequila. Tequilas have to be double distilled because there's not enough actual raw sugar content to get the proof up high enough on one distilling run. So you have to double distill tequila tequila just to get the alcohol up to about 90 proof. So you can kind of proof it down to 80 or 84 or whatever it is you're, you're putting it out at. So yeah, double distilled tequila is not, not a marketing thing. That's just, you know, again, I I had a a guy pitch me on a product. Yeah. That was another can pop Uh, pitch me on a product last year. I'm like, and he said, uh, we get our tequila from Mexico. And I said, where the hell else would you get it? It can only come from Mexico. Um, so that's not really a selling point to me when you're stating obvious guideline facts, uh, silliness there. Um, Wild Turkey, kind of exciting. Campari is investing $161 million to build a second distillery on site at the Wild Turkey Distillery which is a great place. If you make it down to Kentucky, wild Turkey is one of those places you have to go. It's a, just a fantastic place to visit. Very scenic, beautiful, great visitor center. That's brand new within the past few years. Uh, but yeah, Campari is investing a ton of money in it and it will expand wild Turkey's capacity for brew for distilling from 9 million to 14 million proof gallons a year. Um, that's huge. You know, that means more Russell's Reserve. It means more Wild Turkey 101. And the fact that they can make more, hopefully they can keep the price down on that. Because, you know, Wild Turkey 101, great bottle of whiskey for affordable. But it also means more rare breed, more Kentucky spirit, uh, more rare breed rye. So, you know, amping up, adding another uh, 5 million gallons of proof whiskey uh to their you know ability to bottle. So that's pretty awesome. Again, much like we talked about with Buffalo Trace, don't expect this tomorrow, but within the next 6 to 8 years, uh you'll see more wild turkey on the market and hopefully some more interesting kind of one-off, you know, bottlings. And maybe we'll finally start to see some some more Russell's Reserve single barrel up here, maybe even get back into doing some barrel picks of of Russell's Maybe a barrel program for regular wild turkey. Who knows? Uh, But, yeah, that's a good, good thing for all of us bourbon drinkers. And Hood River Distillers, which I I don't even know why I kind of have this in my notes. Uh, But they are releasing four new whiskeys under, oh, I didn't even write it down. Whatever the brand is, it's kind of goofy. But Hood River is in Oregon. But they're releasing four new whiskeys, three of them flavored. One of them is a five-year blended Canadian whiskey. Maybe this is why I wrote it down. Blended Canadian whiskey, you know, maybe a little bit of Pendleton Moves, which I believe is bottled at Hood River Distillery as well. But beyond Crown Royal, that is the Canadian whiskey category. Why we need another blended canadian whiskey that's not even bottled in canada beyond me uh but there's three flavors to accompany that are shiny apple giant peach and spice of life Uh, i don't know like what grown-up those (laughs) flavors are are marketed to uh i feel like you're just appealing to uh to kids, and the first thing I thought of was *James and the Giant Peach*. Yeah, I, again, I I don't know why uh, this is necessary. So before I get into it, I just cracked another can. This is one that I was actually very very excited about. Uh, I tasted this with Corey on the Wachusett Wine and Spirits video uh, recently, and this is the Jack Daniel's and Coke RTD, ready to drink pre-made Jack and Coke and that so much didn't, you know, kind of move the needle for me. But when I saw that it was Jack Daniels and Coke zero, yeah, I was curious. So the can looks great. Black can Jack Daniels logo, actual Coca-Cola label. So it's not just any sort of Jack and Cola. It's co-branded with Coca-Cola. Fully branded on the can. Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. So we're talking Jack. We're talking Jack and Coke. Classic. One of the first drinks I ever had out at a bar when I was probably 18. Um, This is 7% alcohol. So it's got a little bit more kick to it than, you know, your Trulies and your White Claws. I think it's about 15 bucks for a four-pack. And, uh, yeah, I mean, on the nose smells like Jack and Coke. Here we go. Mm. It tastes like a Jack and Coke. Now, admittedly, it tastes like if you got a Jack and Coke and there was ice in the glass and you forgot about it for a little bit and some of the ice melted and watered down the drink a little bit. It kind of tastes like that, but it still has that Jack flavor. It still has that Coke flavor. It's delicious. I will probably be drinking this over the summer again on a Sunday, fun day, hanging out with my friends a little bit higher in alcohol. Uh, You know, I have to watch and probably drink six white claws to four of these Jack and Cokes because of the ABV difference. But overall, like great, great product. It's everything I wanted it to be. And admittedly, you know, I am down on these RTDs because, you know, why wouldn't you just buy a handle of Jack and a two liter of Coke and go home and make them? And that is my thought on it. But at the same time, if I'm going to like an outdoor festival concert, you know, here in mass, we have the Comcast or Xfinity or great woods, depending on how old you are and what you remember it as, um, but out in Mansfield, great outdoor venue, Uh, love going to shows there you know it's a, a great venue to go tailgate before you go to the show grab a four pack of these instead of bringing a bottle of jack daniels one it's already made so it's easier two you're not transporting glass and three you know if you bring a bottle of jack daniels with you and you don't finish it and now you've got to drive it home you've got an open container in your vehicle that's not good if you've been pre-gaming at the concert, maybe had a drink or two in the concert, did whatever foreign substances you took in gummy form or smoked, and then turns out you get a tail light out on your way home, you get pulled over by the cops, and you've got an open bottle of Jack Daniels in the backseat. You are going to jail. Take a four-pack of these, you drink three of them, you've got a can left over, you get pulled over in the same scenario. You might be going to jail, but you're not going to jail for transporting an open container, uh, which is just another level. It's just safer and smarter. Uh, Again, going away to the beach. I'll be going up to Hampton to see a bunch of shows. We'll talk about that on future episode. Uh, My favorite place to see a concert. So I'll be grabbing a four pack of this to go up, you know, spend a night at Hampton, drink these in the hotel room again, without having to drive a whole bottle of Jack Daniels up and a whole bottle, you know, half a bottle of Jack Daniels back. So, I like it for that purpose as a daily drinker to just buy and bring home. No, buy a bottle of Jack and some Coke, make them the way you want them. But for travel purposes, these are ideal for that. All right. I got a few minutes left in this segment and I want to touch upon these three things that are kind of grinding at me. And two of them, uh, two new whiskeys announced coming out and uh, the, one of them is from Ryan Bingham. Now, if you're a Yellowstone fan, uh, he plays the guy that uh, he's the musician guy who lives in the bunkhouse and he's an actual musician. It's part of the appeal of Yellowstone is a lot of the people on there as actors actually do what they're acting in real life. So a lot of the cowboys are actually cowboys. Ryan Bingham you know, plays a cowboy, but he's a musician on the show. He's a real country musician. He's putting out a, a bourbon. Under his own name, Bingham's. And then I read this week, Steph Curry. Steph Curry, basketball star, is coming out with his own bourbon. I wish I had my phone here with me. I could... the, The name is something absolutely ridiculous. And the question is, like, with all these bourbon prices going up and everybody taking a price increase, I don't get it. Because clearly, there's enough bulk bourbon out there in the marketplace that Steph Curry is going to launch his own brand of bourbon. And I feel like I could do a whole podcast and I probably will do a whole rant on people like, you know, Terry Bradshaw, uh, the guys from vampire diaries who have uh brother's bond whiskey, all these celebrities who are putting out bourbon. And yet the price of all the other bourbons are going way up. I don't get why the price is going up. If there's so much goddamn juice out there that Steph Curry can just decide today, like, no, oh, I'm going to put out a bourbon and he's got juice. I, I, I don't get it. Uh, and it's something I'm going to continue to rant about is the celebrity sort of partnerships and not knowing exactly what they do. You know, are they just, cause I know that there's a company out there that if Steph Curry calls up and says, you know what? I, I'd like to put my name on a brand. And there are brands out there who are looking for like somebody to attach to and it's funny, Katrina and I talk about it in the episode. We probably don't get to it until next week's portion, uh, but what an executive producer does. And sometimes an executive producer on a movie is really responsible for getting the movie made. And sometimes, you know, we just want to pay an actor this amount of money, but a way to give him more money is just to say like, oh, he was a producer or she was a producer and they get a second paycheck. It's a way to you know, give him a little bit of vanity and a little bit of extra money. Sometimes with these celebrity brands, yeah, sometimes they're actually getting in, doing barrel samples, creating their own sort of thing. Uh, like Ed Belfour, the former hockey player, his whiskeys are great. Uh, and they're building their own distillery. And he's actually doing it. Some of these other ones, like Bob Dylan's Heaven's Door, he just lends his name to it and the licensing rights and you know gets to drink free whiskey for the rest of his life. Uh, but again, how these guys are just Deciding one day, like, oh, I'm going to start a bourbon brand. And there's juice available to them when, you know, I have supply chain issues on other bourbons or the price is going up. I, I it just defies logic to me. And then that kind of leads into the, the last one that I'll touch upon. Uh, and actually, my girlfriend brought this to me uh, with a great sort of perspective, because, again, she works in rehab and recovery and bless her. Uh, for putting up with me and the amount that I drink and taste uh, while she is remaining sober and having to deal with people who have issues um, with not being able to handle their, their alcohol or drugs or, you know, as well as other things bless her for putting up with, with me and my habits. But she actually sent me this in a, a text today. She sent me a link to an article of Jennifer Lopez uh, and I actually had this on my notes because I had read it earlier in the week. I just didn't realize the depth of it. Jennifer Lopez is launching a brand of RTDs, again, ready to drinks, called Delola, with a guy named Ken Austin and a woman named Jen Fagnin, I believe is her name, and they're all partnered with Beam Suntory, so big old money involved, and Ken and Jen were kind of behind... The muscle behind brands like Terramana with The Rock and Proper 12 with Conor McGregor, which, by the way, is one of the absolute worst whiskeys I have ever tasted. But here's the backlash. Jennifer Jennifer Lopez doesn't drink, and her husband is in rehab for alcohol right now. And yet, she's launching a brand of alcoholic RTDs instead of launching a brand of non-alcoholic RTDs or non-alcoholic spirits. And my girlfriend says to me, like, why would somebody do that? And it proves that this is a money grab. Somebody who doesn't drink promoting a product that has alcohol in it is an absolute money grab. Um, Yeah, it's just bonkers. And again, a sign that things have gone too far. All right, I'm going to take a break and come back. Get some stuff to talk to you before we get to my chat with Katrina. So uh, go grab a glass and I'll uh, be back in a second all right so we're back season three episode 13 lucky number 13 part one of my conversation with my good friend katrina talking about sort of the nuts and bolts uh in the we kind of reference the the reference of you know how the sausage is made uh how there's so much more to to film in television than what we see on the screen. So really, really exciting uh, stuff there. And before we get to that, I want to, you know, hope everybody had a good Easter weekend, you know, whatever it is you believe or however it is you worship. Uh, Hopefully you just had a good day of of rest, maybe spent some time with family or just spent some time like I did, you know, out on my porch getting my uh, garden all set up for the summer, uh, getting my lighting set up. My porch is my uh, my it's my safe, happy place when I come home from work. uh, And it's nice to have some warmer weather so I can go hang out out there, have a cigar. Uh, I look forward to recording some podcast episodes outside there as well. Having some friends over for some drinks and cigars. So that's how I spent my Easter. Hopefully you guys, you know, had a good day as well. In my Sunday vinyl uh, Instagram post, uh, which again is music I'm actually listening to and there are things I'm actually drinking, but there are some sort of Easter themed uh, little eggs in there. uh, If you have a twisted sense of humor like I do. So uh, yeah, if you don't pick up on them, uh, I'll tell you what they were next week. (laughs) So, you know, before we get to my conversation, I kind of tasked myself with, you know, what spirit has the flavors that really go with with easter and i know it seems like a weird thing but this is just somehow the way my brain works at times and i was going through my my cabinet and thinking of you know what what can i possibly drink you know i don't want bourbon it was too early in the day to start drinking wine which i had with dinner i had a great bottle of of Cote cotarone with my easter dinner uh i made a, a ham dinner and uh I came across a bottle that you know, was kind of tucked in the back of the cabinet. One of those things that I forget about, and I, I feel like I'm on this mission lately to bring back some of these things that we either forget about or overlook. And sadly, I, I saw this bottle and I'm like, oh, that is so Easter. And so it, it's delicious. And, you know, I know we're past Easter, but this is something that is going to be great for Sunday brunches or just an, an easy cocktail to make anytime and i'm talking about pimm's liqueur number one um this has always been a favorite of mine and maybe you guys have seen this you know sort of in the aisle over by the campari and the aperol you know maybe near the you know the fernet Branca and the vermouth and you're like what is that weird stuff that looks like only old people drink it um it's fantastic. It's, an, it's a magical, magical elixir. And it's got a long storied history that sadly, yeah, maybe people don't know about it. But I'm on a mission to, to kind of bring this one back as well. A delicious low ABV spirit, um, which makes a wonderful low ABV cocktail. And again, you know, if you're going to have a couple of these, It's kind of nice to have that lower alcohol but big flavor um, so you don't get too kind of, you know, too goofy. And that was, you know, one of the sort of selling points at one point, you know, in New Orleans, Pimm's Cup was a big, big cocktail kind of earlier 1900s, maybe 1940s. Somebody there tries to take credit for inventing the Pimm's Cup, but that's that's not really the case. But they used it there as a way to – you know, have a cocktail that they could offer their customers that they could drink a lot of. Uh, and it just took them a lot longer to get kind of bonkers. But here's the really cool story on pims. It goes all the way back to like 1820s. There's a guy named James Pim who had an oyster house in England. And, you know, at that point, liquor was considered to be medicinal. So he you, you took a gin base which was the other part of why this was kind of appealing because, you know, in the next segment, when we start to talk to Katrina, we're talking about gin while we're talking about the film and TV industry. So, you know, sometimes the universe just comes together on these things. It was a gin base that he infused with things like quinine uh, and other herbs, because really, you know, herbs were, were kind of the medicine of the day before we had pharmaceutical companies (laughs) to create these things, uh, much more natural healing methods. Whether it worked or not, who's to say? Um, But he would infuse this gin with this secret blend of of herbs and roots and and sort of bittering agents. And he served it in what was known as a number one cup. And I'm pretty sure that was the size. And so the cocktail became known as a Pimm's cup. Uh, And traditionally, they would mix this liqueur with lemonade in England, uh, which kind of evolved to like lemonade and soda water which evolved into like a lemon-lime soda, uh, which is what they used in New Orleans. And, you know, you pack it up with fruit. So, you know, if you're a fan of like Aperol spritz, uh, this will fit in there too. You can use this in place of Aperol spritz. And the cocktail, Pim's Cup, which at some point would also evolve to being made with ginger ale, which is how I'm going to make it. So I've got my glass here. Uh, that's the sound device, if you didn't know. Uh, that's a screw cap twist. It's going to pour like an ounce and a half of PIMS into my glass. Top it with some... No sound effects on these things. No fun cork pops or can pops. Um, just nice, simple, easy. So, nothing wrong with that either. I'm going to throw a couple dashes of... I actually have some cucumber bitters here, if you can find those. Um, but you could use any sorts of bitters. Uh, you could garnish this with strawberries, orange slice, cucumber slice, whatever you want. Put a whole bunch of fruit in there, and you are ready to go. And if you want like, what does it taste like? Well, it doesn't quite taste like Aperol. doesn't quite taste like Campari. It's a lot more floral. Almost like almost like roses, um, again some some different herbs it's just I don't know how to describe it other than it just tastes like pims. Uh, I like ginger ale instead of sprite or you know seven up or whatever lemon lime soda is out there. Let's take a sip it's so so delicious. Kind of like earthy, fruity, floral, yeah just an absolutely delicious cocktail 25% alcohol so pretty low abv and that's it just pims and ginger ale pims and sprite you're on your way this is a summertime sipper all day long for me so just a little bit more on pims before we move on uh this again was invented between 1820 and 1840 Pimm's number one is, which is what we see in the store now. Uh, there was a kind of series of them. There was a Pimm's number two that was made with Scotch at its base, a number three that had brandy at its base, a number four that had rum at its base, a number five that had rye at its base, a number six that had vodka at its base, and then there have been sort of one-offs over the years, uh, like a seven, eight, and nine that I think had bourbon. One had tequila in him. Uh, none of them really stuck around, but the original Pimm's number one. And you're talking about $25 bucks on the shelf for something that makes a great low ABV, just kind of spritzy cocktail, perfect for Sunday brunch or, you know, after work. Sometimes, you you know, you don't want to have a lot of alcohol, but you want something to just kind of take the edge off. This is perfect for, you know, just a little after work sipper. <sighs> The problem is, is it's so addictive (laughs) that I'm probably going to, you know, finish this cocktail by the time we finish this segment. Uh, Eventually, this would be bought out by Diageo in 1990s, I think it was. So it's still there on the shelf. Again, 25 bucks. Just worth kind of picking up for a, a nice, refreshing low ABV cocktail. And again, gin at its base, which is what we're going to be talking about next when Katrina comes in to join me. But we're not always getting to drink with friends, which is the best way to drink spirits. Uh, Sometimes we're on our own. You know, like I said, it's after work. Um, You just don't want to be around people. You just want to have a cocktail and do something. And, you know, one of the things I love to do is read books uh, when I'm having a cocktail and, and just kind of being on my own. And I am probably a third of the way through this one guys and you guys know my my love and passion for all things anthony bourdain you know it's it's kind of been what kicked off the first season of full length episodes talking about you know kitchen confidential uh we've talked about roadrunner uh which was the documentary made by morgan neville uh and then you know, Katrina was here maybe a month or so ago, and we were talking about In the Weeds by Tom Vitali. And, you know, again, Kitchen Confidential was Anthony Bourdain by Anthony Bourdain. Um, Morgan Neville was sort of the narrative of Anthony Bourdain's life through a guy who didn't meet him, but did a great job of assembling all these video clips to tell a story of Anthony Bourdain's life. Tom Vitale, who was a producer and director on No Reservations. That book was, you know, such an in-depth book of the story of Anthony Bourdain through his eyes, but also his story of how to deal with Anthony Bourdain's death uh, and also a great story about production, which is why Katrina came and talked about that book with me then, because there was so much to kind of dive into from so many different perspectives. What I'm reading now I didn't think there was any more to learn. I didn't think this could get any deeper um, than it had gotten. And then I started reading this book, and I, I'm just blown away. Page after page, it's one of those books I can't put down. Um, I just can't wait to see <laughs> what happens next and what little tidbit and nugget of information lies on the next page. And the book is called Bourdain the definitive oral biography put together by a woman named Lori Wolliver, who was his personal assistant for like 10 years. And this is, it's not like a lot of books in that it just one straight narrative all the way through what this woman has done is gone back and interviewed all of these people. And I'm going to, I mean, when you get into the book before the first chapter, it lists what is called the cast of characters and they list them. And this is funny. This is kind of foreshadowing uh, in the order of first appearance in the book. Katrina and I talk about that uh, with credits and and how the names and the orders appear in credits in TV shows and movies. But just let me kind of share with you some of the people who were interviewed for this book. Christopher Bourdain, who is his brother, Gladys Bourdain, his mother, Nancy Bourdain, his wife, Um, a guy named Alex Getmanov. Now, if you read Kitchen Confidential, there was a character in there named Dimitri. That's Alex Getmanov. Uh, A bunch of kitchen colleagues, uh, writing partners, going through Uh, Beth Aretsky, who in Kitchen Confidential was the person he referred to as grill bitch in an affectionate way, if you haven't read the book. Uh, Philip Lajeunet, who was the guy who owned Leal, which is where he was working uh, when Kitchen Confidential came out. His daughter is in this book. Octavia, uh, his second wife, is in this book. Uh, Tom Vitale is in this book. All kinds of other authors, uh, people who work for CNN, like Anderson Cooper, uh, Josh Homme, who was a musician. just all these different people who are part of his life. And there's well over a hundred of them here. uh, Just kind of looking at these names, Kamu Bell, just unbelievable. And it's, it's a biography, but the way it's assembled is through these interviews. So it might be a paragraph of Christopher Bourdain, you know, they're talking about, what happened when he you know kitchen confidential and it's the story from all the different people kind of in a linear story but it keeps trading off who's telling the story whether it's his brother it's his mother somebody from the kitchen he was with absolutely fascinating to get these perspectives i i I haven't gotten to it yet but his daughter is interviewed for the books and i almost get chills every time i think of I, what's going to happen when I get to that part and get to read her words on paper. Ah, man that cocktail is so good. There's just so much in-depth interesting material in here and things that I didn't I didn't know. Um you know I kind of assumed that Kitchen Confidential was the first book that was published because that's kind of always the way it seemed to me. And even in watching Roadrunner, it seemed that way to me because they never really mentioned his other books uh, other than the ones that came after Kitchen Confidential, some of them. But by the time Kitchen Confidential came out, he had already been published. He had put out two works of fiction, uh, one called Bone in the Throat and the other called Gone Bamboo. which I have coming in the mail because now I want to go back and read those. He always fancied himself as a fiction writer. Uh, didn't even think that he could be sort of a, a biographical or autobiographical writer uh, and, and write like nonfiction stuff. He always wanted to be a fiction writer and he wanted to be an illustrator and all of that stuff. I had no idea. So he was already making money Writing books before Kitchen Confidential came out, and then that whirlwind hit, and it goes from there. Um, you know, it it goes into a little bit more in depth of the drug use from his childhood, which you know clearly he wasn't. You know, everybody kind of knew it from Kitchen Confidential, but some of the depths of it uh, are really disclosed in this book uh, before Kitchen Confidential came out. He had an aunt who had passed away that left him a quarter of a million dollars in like the the eighties. I think he was in his twenties at the time that he spent on you know drugs and and travel and just a lot of like information. You know, I didn't realize that his mother worked for a, you know a publishing house, so she was in the publishing industry as well. There's just so many great, great details about the life of Anthony Bourdain that just makes him an even more fascinating and interesting character to me. Yeah. I it, It's the kind of book that you can't wait to pick back up and just see what's going to get exposed next. So that's what I've been reading. Um And yeah, I've got the two non-fictions. I've never read anything non-fiction. Uh, not non-fiction. Whew too much sucking down of these pimps cups. I haven't read anything fiction by Anthony Bourdain. So I'm looking forward to digging into those uh, soon as well. And I will share my thoughts on those books with you guys uh, when they come in. All right. Now it's time for part one of my conversation with my good friend, Katrina uh, talking about the nuts and the bolts and how the sausage is made in the film and television industry Uh, And hopefully uh, you guys enjoy it. So go grab a drink and uh, meet us back here in a minute. Yeah. So I got to tell you what happened with this podcast last night before we get into this one. So I sit here and I record and I do it in, obviously I do it in segments it programs a half an hour at a time, whatever. And usually when I come yeah. home on Saturdays, I do like that first segment where I'm talking about like what happened in the news of spirits this week. And so I get that in the can. It makes it a little easier on, on Sunday for the time crunch. Hmm. So I come in here and um, I record the second segment and I had no idea where I was going with it as always. And then like, I'm happy with it. It came out I'm like, Oh, this is great. And I'm in a roll and the, like the, the juices are going. Hmm. So while it's processing, I go out, refill my water, my stuff, come in, record part three. Now I'm happy, but I've also been drinking. (laughs) Right. We had gone out for food after the show. I had a couple of beers there, recorded, drank a whole bunch, segment two, segment three, and I look over, and it says upload failed. Oh, no. So the file's there in the computer, so now I'm trying to re-upload. Then it's telling me there's no internet. So now I'm checking my internet and I'm going back and forth. But like in my mind, like I want to get this thing recorded. Like I'm I'm going. So I grab the other laptop
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and I hook everything up through this one, record the final segment, look over still not uploading, not uploading. So I'm thinking, well, maybe if I restart it well in the restart, I lose the file completely because it never uploaded. So now, I have part one and part three of the podcast done. The middle, middle is,
1: is, is just gone. gone. No.
0: So now I've got a nice little buzz going on. And I'm like, all right, well, I've got this laptop set up. I'll just go re record two.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that doesn't work. I've tacked on a pretty healthy buzz by that point. So now I'm just rambling and I'm knowing because as I'm talking in the back of my head, I'm going, oh, you've already said this. And I'm trying to figure out, like, did I say this already? What did I say in this? And I'm trying to recreate it while being buzzed, right. tripping over my words, get the whole thing out. Listen to it this morning, and I was like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> scrap the whole thing and re record it uh, later tonight. So uh, the episode that was supposed to come out today probably won't come out won't until come tomorrow. Out. Gotcha. Um, and so there we are, recording. Uh, I'm here in the studio with Katrina back again. Mm-hmm. Love it. Uh, just wrapped a, a project Yes, or, or is it wrapped or is it still,
1: I'm, I mean, I'm still kind of a little bit here and there, um, trying to wrap it up, but, um, yeah, for the, for all intents and purposes, my mind is out of
0: it. <laughs> I feel like when this started, it was, I'm going to be on this for two weeks and then I'll be back. And then it was.
1: I mean, I didn't, I mean, technically I never left the store, <laughs> um, because I worked remote so I could still work in the store. Um, yeah, this one was, this one was rough without naming it specifically because I'm not sure it's going to listen to this. Yeah. But those who know, know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there is, a, there is an urban legend uh, movie in Massachusetts called Alter Rock. And anybody who knows that movie or worked on that movie hears those two words and immediately just eyes pop open and go, you worked on that? Or did this really happen? <laughs> and I can say that because it's not, the, the movie actually isn't named Alter Rock. They changed it. Um, but this show was worse than that one. <laughs>
0: fantastic
1: (laughs) fantastic
0: so yeah i wanted to talk about movies because Mm -hmm. what you do is is interesting in in that there's a couple things we talked about this last week of like you said something that kind of stuck with me of like we all have the same bones but the body on the outside all kind of looks different Mm -hmm. and it's it's sometimes the i don't what inspired me, and I'll, I'll kind of start with the question, and we're drinking a whole bunch of gin today, um, yeah, just to sort of set the, the mood, it's, it's early morning, but the sun is out, The spring sun is, is on its way, or spring is here. And I, I
1: think spring is delayed, mm. spring doesn't know if it wants to come, like right,
0: that. right, <laughs> it's but, like 30 degrees outside, <laughs> yeah, but there's sun and there's no snow, and spring is, is on the way, and that makes me think gin, and that's why we've got gin, but gin is also incredibly complex, and there's so much more to it than what people think, and there's more to it than, than gin and tonics. And we're not going to drink all of these, but I just put like seven bottles up and I'll let you pick whichever ones you're curious about trying. Oh boy. Yeah, no, we've, we've got options here.
1: I also have a mystery. Well, it's not really a mystery drink. You already have, you've already had it. I'm sure you've already had it, but I'm, but I'm going to make it fun. Even though nobody can see it although I'll I'll see if I can set up my my video camera so people can see it. Um, Yeah, a little little blind taste test for Rich.
0: Nice. (laughs) So, I mean, you can pick or I can pick. So yeah, we've got a couple of flavored gins here. We've got a couple of traditional, a couple of barrel aged gins. Um, So what's the difference between barrel aged and like something like porters. So it, it's funny because I, I, it's one of these things that people say all the time of like, I don't like that brown liquor, you know, and all spirits are clear when they're made. Mm-hmm. Even whiskey is crystal clear when it's made. Um, it doesn't get any color till you put it in a barrel or you add coloring to it. Yeah. Uh, so gin is typically a clear spirit, but for one reason or another, Sometimes people will age it in barrel, give it more complexity. Uh, it was done sort of originally, there's a style of gin called Old Tom that in England, if they made, I could do a whole thing on, on gin and the history and, and just how fascinating it is. And it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, at one point, it was cheaper to buy gin in England than it was beer. And so people just drank gin. Um Which is funny in today's sort of current economical climate, when all these companies are raising the prices on everything, thinking that people will chase those prices, they're going to chase them back down to what they can afford to drink. Um, And that's what happened in in England. And then there's all these famous paintings of people just laying around in the streets, shattered on gin. Uh, But there was a style called Old Tom that if you made gin that wasn't very good, you'd add some sort of sweetener to it. And then throw it in a barrel to kind of let that sweetener kind of set in and and sort of mix and mingle. Okay. And now, today, people do it intentionally. You know, like they'll add a sweetener or they'll put it in good barrels with good gin and kind of do it on purpose. Okay. Uh, The porters, which we actually tried the other day, um, we tried the orchard gin. So this is their Tropical Old Tom. So again, a little bit of sugar added to it, um, but it's not a barrel aged old Tom. So it was the first one that I had ever seen that wasn't barrel aged, it's still a clear old Tom. Uh, I love the fact you read it the other day, uh, made in a bar, not in a boardroom. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so gin, just sort of for the, the quick two second tutorial, uh, gin, the only thing that makes gin gin is that there's juniper in it somewhere Um, and it retains some sort of juniper quality again, talking about like how everything is kind of the same, but everything is kind of different after the juniper, anything goes. So the base spirit could be anything from like a rye spirit, a grain neutral spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw one that was a rum base spirit and then they either infuse it, they distill it. There's all different kinds of ways that gin can be made. It's a crazy, crazy landscape. Um, and they're kind of like flavored vodkas with the main flavoring component being juniper and gin is, it's something that I think scares a lot of people too.
1: Just, yeah. I don't, yeah, we were, we were, I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day about how it's where our, we were exposed to Bombay
0: or Tanqueray or, or Tanqueray
1: or whatever when we were younger. And so it, it, I don't like, I didn't really like that taste. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't pick that liquor over mm-hmm. with others. But the same thing can be said for bourbons and whiskeys. I yep. mean, what we what we grew up drinking versus what's out there now, like you've introduced me to so many different ones that I would actually enjoy versus what was out there before. So I I mean, I like that fact that they that people have done different things, you know, used the base, but then expanded it to. Hopefully yeah. a different audience, if you will.
0: And it really goes down to the botanicals that get kind of infused into it. And mm-hmm. again, I could, do, I could talk for hours on, on how it's made. Sometimes they have the base spirit and they put all the ingredients in like a cheesecloth and just let it sit in there mm-hmm. and flavor it. Um, sometimes they do like a, a basket infusion. So you have your column still, so the alcohol vapors are going up. And they would put baskets in the column. Okay. So the vapors would go through the different botanicals. Uh, with the Benhams, they actually distill each of their botanicals individually and then blend all of those distillates together. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, there's a lot that kind of goes into it. Um, by the way, we're drinking these out of Glen Glencairn glasses, um, which are really kind of focused at the top. And I did that so that you could really get the aromas out of it.
1: It's, yeah, it's extremely... Yeah.
0: (laughs) So this is their tropical Old Tom. Uh, The ingredients, juniper, coriander, that comes up a lot. Angelica, Mm. uh, those are kind of the, you know, the usual suspects in gin. But then you get orange, lemon, uh, kasha, oris root, cinnamon, licorice, almond, passion fruit, guava, and white tea. All of those are infused into this distillate. And the other thing I like about it is it's 80 proof. Sometimes gins get up 90, 94, which is great. But if you want to drink a lot of them.
1: Hmm.
0: It's like no gin I've ever tasted.
1: Yeah, that does not taste like. It what tastes you, like
0: flavored vodka.
1: What you think gin would taste like. I mean, I can, I can taste.
0: Yeah, you still get the juniper in there. The
1: juniper of it, but it's not. At the forefront, mm. I definitely get the tea at the end.
0: Mm. Hmm. I think it that makes, is very
1: complex and interesting.
0: It makes <laughs> you know. I know you don't like tonic water. I don't. Um, but this in soda, like I think tonic water would kill this. Anyways, I was just
1: gonna say I would not put tonic water it, with it, this because it, it overpower. It would all. overpower, and you would lose all of those flavors. However.
0: But things like a French 75 or a bee's knees um, would really, really play well with that gin.
1: Yes. You know what? I brought. I brought my own. Hang on.
0: We're going to. Oh, can pop. It's kind of my new thing for the opening of the podcast is doing can pops.
1: Or now. bottle pops.
0: Well, I like the bottle pops, but I've been reviewing. I reviewed two really awful r yesterday, too. That will get lost. I'll, I'll have to play you that file. Um,
1: so I'm just adding a little polar original seltzer to this because I'm i kind of addicted to polar. So. Yep.
0: Have seltzer will travel.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So much better. Because you need those bubbles. Yep. It helps bring out the different flavors. But we talked about this, too. Like, you could add get a basil to that you could add orange Mm -hmm. or lemon um just a fresh element to continue to bring out those flavors and that is something i would drink i mean uh, again i'm not usually a gin drinker but this is definitely something that i would drink
0: and at 35 bucks in the shelf
1: it's a great value
0: yeah and there's pictures of this on my instagram if you scroll back the the porter's gin yes i'm
1: still going to take a picture of it and put it up
0: absolutely (laughs) Absolutely. So I had questions and kind of what inspired this whole conversation was, and admittedly, we chatted about it a little bit last week, but like, you're a, a sort of a credits whore at the end of the movie yes. or the end of the show. Yes. I know you scroll the credits and you scroll them for a variety of reasons. People, you know, obviously, um, like you said, size of the office crew, different sort yeah, of business decisions. I'm always very in.
1: interested in, in how big the office is, how big the accounting office was, um, how many, assist- like just basically how big each department was mm-hmm. and, and, and who was in each department. Or if you're watching a movie and you're like, Oh, there was only maybe one or two stunts. And then you look and there's really like 10 mm-hmm. <laughs> stunt people. So yeah, no, I, 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 enc- I always encourage everybody to watch the credits, even though I know most people, leave, mm-hmm. um, all of those people is the, the, it took all of
0: those people to make what you just saw. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it kind of sparked a couple of questions. One, is there, I guess a, a rule or a, a standard like that you have to have credits, like, is that part of union or whatever, like that those people all have to be acknowledged at the end, or is it just sort of a courtesy tradition
1: Um, it's a courtesy tradition. I don't think it's, we do have in our, well, at least actors do crew doesn't necessarily, um, in crew, crew deal memos, they'll ask, what would you like your name to be? But there is always a disclaimer on the bottom that says it's not guaranteed. Uh, so for instance, uh, I worked on Castle Rock season two, Mm. right? So the only credits that they showed were the heads of the departments, even though hundreds of people worked on that show including myself, you won't see my name in the credits because it's a TV show. They only pick certain names. So like you'll see that on TV mm-hmm. shows now. They'll they'll give you a few names in the beginning of the show. And mm-hmm. then at the end you'll see the little ticker on the bottom. It'll go really yeah. fast. Um, but it more than likely will just be the heads of the departments instead of everybody that actually worked on that. Um, so yeah it's it's a it's I don't I wouldn't say it's a courtesy thing. It's it's part of it, but I think it just depends on the show mm. uh, actors though have very specific uh, where their name ends up in the credits. Mm. So if you have if you watch a movie and you see with Michael Douglas mm. or and Brad Pitt, mm. uh, they were a bigger name that needs the end credit. Right. Like that's mm. the name that you re- like. Mm. You remember the first name you see and the last name you see. So. Agents and managers, they work that into their contract as well. I want my client's name to be the one that everybody remembers. So you'll list Mm. the so back end and it'll and it'll specifically say and so and so or with so and so. And that's literally in their contract. Interesting.
0: What goes into the decision making of sometimes you see that the actors listed in order of like star power, and Mm. sometimes they'll list them like in order of appearance. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the first name is like the most irrelevant character, but it's the first person that appears. Like, does that just have to do with like, if Brad Pitt's in the movie, we're not doing this in order of appearance. He gets right up top.
1: D- again, it kind of depends on the show. Um, it's Some it can be, you know, because they want that star power up front. Some the camaraderie is Let's. We're all in, so we'll do it mm-hmm. in alphabetical order. So it doesn't matter who's first billing or last billing. It's alphabetical order. So we're to so to them they're all equal, um, unless it's specifically written in their contract. At the mm-hmm. end of it, the producers can pretty much do whatever they want. Okay.
0: And that brings to the next question: <laughs> What does a producer do? Oh God! And I was inspired <laughs> because I watched the Waco docudrama, not the one that's on Netflix, which is the actual footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I get to the end, and I don't always stick around for the credits, but sometimes I'll notice like whoever pops up first and then you know you're getting up to go get a drink and because I don't know what the key grip does. And so I don't know anybody who's a key grip. So I doesn't matter who he is. <laughs> like I'm not gonna hey I know Joe. Um, but at the end, you know, Waco David Koresh, um the hostage negotiator, Played by Michael Shannon, who played an actual guy named Gary Nosner, who wrote a book, um, and a guy named Taylor Kitsch played David Koresh, mm-hmm. um, who's a Canadian actor. Phenomenal job on both of them. Great series, by the way. Uh, John Leguizamo's in it. Uh, some other, some of those faces that you recognize, but you don't know their names. But I found it interesting that it was produced by the guy who played the negotiator. And the guy who played Koresh in the series was very favorable towards Koresh. Okay. it I, I think it acknowledged the guns in the compound once in six episodes. It was just very favorable. It made it look like they were great. And I just thought, like, what an interesting take on this. And it's, the show is done from the perspective of the hostage negotiator who wrote a book and a guy who was inside who survived and wrote a book. And they kind of did a hybrid of these two books, but it really does lean favorably towards correction. I just thought really interesting that Michael Shannon, while not Brad Pitt good looking, is a big name right. in, in Hollywood. So then it kind of led me to the question, like, what was his role in that?
1: Do you remember if um, he had PGA after his name?
0: No. Like he didn't
1: or you don't remember? I
0: don't remember. Okay, but I think he was they were both listed as executive producers.
1: producers. Okay, so, yeah, in the world of producing, uh, there are various levels um, and again, various things that can kind of change the situation. Um, Executive producers usually mean the money behind Mm. the show. So you'll see a lot of businessy business type names as an executive Mm. producer and not so much Mm. an actor. However, with actors um, in mind, some actors are actual producers where they get very involved with how it's going to shoot, who they're hiring, like scheduling and all of that. And then there's the actors that are basically in producing name only, um, which just basically means they got an extra fee. So they got their accounting, I mean, their acting fee and then they got a producer fee to me. If I see the, uh letters pga Mm. like brad pitt will have pga after his name he's an actual producer because that's the producers guild of america Mm. so he's part of a union that produces so he actually got his hands dirty and in it and and worked it where if you see a producer in name or executive producer there there's the money it just kind of depends on did they get paid a little extra or Mm. did they put in their own money so yeah there's a lot of nuance (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to producing, and and we had talked about mm-hmm. this earlier, uh, but there was a movie that Robert Pattinson had done where he was an executive producer on it, but he gave up part of his salary. Um, Remember Me was the mm-hmm. movie. He gave up part of his salary to literally get that movie made because he believed in mm-hmm. it. And so there's those examples as well where they'll they'll take a pay cut in order to get something, a project done that they're very passionate about. So
0: So much different than kind of the old days of Hollywood, like in the TV show, The Offer. Right. Where the producer was actually producing whatever it took dealing with the mob or or whatever.
1: It's usually the money part of it. You know, either uh, raising the money, managing the money, um, handling with investors or whatnot. I mean, because again, Mm -hmm. across the board is you can either have a film that has lots of investors, like the movie I just worked on, or you can work on a movie where like when I started my career, it was literally one company that had money that allotted a certain amount of money per project. So it was just one producing company. So again, it's, you know, like I said, like the bones are the same, (laughs) but it all looks a little different just kind of depending on how they put it together.
0: And you at some point in your Storied Hollywood career.
1: Hmm.
0: uh, Also produced.
1: Yes. Didn't you? I did. Do you have another class?
0: I do. Because I'm going to dump this out so I can.
1: I wanted to try that actually. Um, Yes, I co produced two features. Oh, Lord. 2016? Sounds about right. Um, We did one at 500,000 came in under budget. And so the second one that we did, which was right after that one, we asked for more money and they said, no, no, you came in under budget. We're going to give you less. money." (laughs) Um, And the second one we did was a lot of fun. It was my first away show where I've been very lucky. I've been able to work in Massachusetts for most of my career. I've done one movie in California and one movie in Atlanta. Um, and this was a lot of fun because we brought in people from New England and, uh, it was kind of like a summer camp ish where we all kind of stayed in the same spot in, including actors. And, uh, we filmed it in Idlewild, uh, California, which is uh, about two hours outside of LA, uh, in the mountains, <laughs> which Something I will, and this is not necessarily film related, but just being in California, uh, never living there and dealing with the fires of California, right? Driving up to Otterwild, you could literally see how fire jumps because you could drive down a stretch of road and see one area completely scorched and literally the very next lot be fine. And then the next one completely scorched. So it was, it was interesting (laughs) to kind of see how people live up there. But it was a lot of fun. It was, it was this small little town. Everybody was, the the mayor was a dog of the town.
0: How very California. (laughs) It
1: was great. And that wasn't
0: the movie. That's the real life.
1: That's the thing. That's, I mean, I think about not the movie necessarily, but, but the experiences that we had making it Mm -hmm. and getting there and doing it, you know, um, and getting it done. Cause it is, I, I read this thing once and some people will agree with me and some people won't, but it's like going into battle. It's like, you're, you're going into this thing with a group of people working, you know, 14, 16 hour days. You don't have a life outside of that. You have a life with these people for three weeks. Um, so it creates a camaraderie and it creates a family. And, you know, we call it a film family. Like I have, I have a lot of family that I haven't seen and we could go years without seeing each other. And then we see each other on another show and it's like no time has passed at all. So
0: it's the whole Tom Vitale. Where you in a cult thing?
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> all right. So gin number two. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you're interested. This is uh, Benham's gin. This is named after Derek Benham. And this is made by Jeff Duckhorn out at Redwood empire.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So this is Jeff's baby. Um, Yeah, when I get to interview Jeff, I had asked him, like, you know, are you involved in this? And he went, yeah, part of my job is to make a gin so Derek can put his name on something. Right. And it was, so it's named after Derek. Uh, Where are my, so juniper, mint, Meyer lemon, peppermint, vanilla, grains of paradise, angelica, coriander, cardamom, oris root, Buddha's hand, and chamomile. Buddha's
1: hand
0: it's a it looks like a hand it's a citrus fruit yeah yeah it's wild and so they distill all the different ones individually this one is the barrel aged they don't do this a lot um but they age it in red wine barrels
1: okay that's what I'm smelling because I'm like I don't smell the I don't really smell the juniper uh coriander yes citrus yes mint chamomile absolutely
0: all of those things are right on the nose And there's something about, I say it all the time, like barrel-aged gins to me, I always get ginger. Mm. There's something about juniper and wood that gives me a a hint of ginger in there. And I think, like, if anybody's out there tasting gin, too, like, what we're doing right now is clearly not the way you're going to be drinking this, unless you're an animal like me and you're just drinking straight gin all the time. But when you're tasting it's like tasting the ingredient in a, a dish of like, all right, what is going to pair with this? Right. Unless you're drinking martinis. This is not a martini gin to me.
1: No, it's it's very woody to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very, very woody. does not taste like gin at all or what you think gin tastes like. It does not
0: taste like that at all. Um, See, I get that ginger again. I get like a spice there and I get the red. I love this. This is a cocktail gin to me. This is mm. Negroni's all day long. Mm-hmm. And you could probably make like a highball, do some seltzer water with this. Um, for people who like highballs. Yeah. Um, you know, like people who like scotch and soda, whiskey and soda, something like that, it would appeal. Right. Um, I could even see this with like some of the Fever Tree sodas if oh, you want sure. to make like a highball kind of like the the spicy orange ginger beer or something like that. I could see. But mostly Negronis. I would just drink this on the rocks.
1: Yeah, I'd be interested what this would be with, like, an orange liqueur. Yeah. You know. Yeah, <sighs> yeah full-bodied, woody. I don't even... It's I don't even taste them in it's more the, the coriander and the, mm. those
0: grains of paradise and...
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah those grains of paradise like it almost has some of that Sam summer kind oh, of sure. flavor in there mm-hmm. and the sort of same ingredients yeah that's super tasty i like that okay. mm. and i know the guy who made it so that's that's always kind of right cool to me
1: <laughs> and the bottle's really cool
0: yeah it I, it, it, it immediately caught my eye yeah it looks like something on a gold rush era Back bar. Absolutely. All right. We are going to take a quick break, rinse our glasses, get some more gin, and uh, yeah, check back with you in a second. So there it is. Part one of my conversation with my good friend, Katrina, talking about the nuts and bolts and how the sausage is made in the film and television world, as well as a couple of cool gins. But we are not done next week. Part two. So much more great information. So many more cool gins. And Katrina actually treats me to a rap party tradition. You're not going to want to miss the rest of this conversation. And hopefully you like what you heard here today. Uh, And if you did, you guys know the deal. Go to the podcast page, click the follow button, give it a five-star rating, share it out on your social media, follow on Facebook and Instagram, where you can leave reviews and comments about the podcast. You can also message me through both of those platforms. Uh, For everything else, you can reach me at the spiritsguide89 at gmail.com. Thank you guys again for being here. Hopefully, you guys come back next week. And hopefully, you guys have a good week in general. It looks like the weather is going to be great. Uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited about being out on the porch, having drinks, cigars, uh, hanging out with some friends out there. So, hopefully, you guys have a great week. And I'll be back next week uh, with part two of this conversation. Cheers, guys.
1: Yay.